little touch pass there. Benson waiting, cuts in, he scores! Oh my! Into the middle, holding, back, Toporowski shooting, shot block, got it back, shot, score! Center of pass forward, of stop, shot, back to play, score! In front, Groove scores! Jaden Groove scores the triple overtime winner. Welcome into WHL Unfiltered. Uh, pleased to be joined by the president and general manager of the Saskatoon Blades, Colin Priestner, as well as my co-host Sean Mullen. So uh, I'm, I'm really appreciative you took some time to, to, to speak with us, Colin. I mean, it seems like uh, you, you've got a lot of irons in the fire these days. Yeah, it's been uh, quite the month. I mean, uh, it's all, you know, it seems like we just, I was just driving back uh, to Edmonton today to head to Alberta Cup tomorrow in Red Deer, but uh, I was driving with Dan Tenser, and we were just saying, like, well, he had that, massive car accident uh, almost a month ago I guess it was or maybe even more I don't even right around a month ago and that was like a near life-changing event and then all of a sudden uh, we had those two sellout games with uh, the Pats uh, coming to town with Bedard with 14,600 at both games and then we played them in the first round got down to nothing played a seven game series in front of 15,000 for the game seven had a baby in game in between the three days between series one and two, had our daughter Elodie, and then uh, just had another uh, insane series. So yeah, my life's been really weird lately, but uh, really fun. Well, it depends on what your definition of miracle is, but it, you know, a baby is certainly a miracle. And when you think about Dan surviving the crash he had with the the amount of injuries he's had, you know considering how bad it could have been that's kind of a miracle coming back from down three nothing it's like a sports miracle so it's not often you get one miracle let alone three in a month so it's a lot to wrap your head around i imagine for sure it's been uh certainly uh very it's, it makes you think about life it makes you think about everything when one of your best friends and your your colleague uh you know basically calls you or texts you from the side of the road saying that uh in shock saying uh something bad's happened and you know it's uh it, it was a miracle that he he wasn't critically injured in that accident i mean he was going 110 kilometers an hour and on the highway uh from edmonton to calgary and you know hit a black ice streak and went across to the other side of the road and was basically hit head on at, at that speed and for both drivers to not be seriously hurt was was I think something that Dan's uh, always still having to wrap his head around. Why did that happen? And if it was one inch further left or right, then uh, then uh, who knows what happened. But uh, I think it's been incredibly cathartic for Dan to be a part of uh, these last 14 playoff games and be a part of you know a team that he's had a huge hand in building and and uh, being at the games and and getting back on the road last week uh, at the BC Cup and and the support he got from the scouting community and the hockey community as a whole I think was very 
life affirming for him. And, and yeah, I, I, you know, he's a diehard Oiler fan as I rip him about all the time. Uh, he hasn't been able to give that, that one up, but, uh, you know, now he's got that team winning too. So things are, you know, if no, nobody deserves to have a great month more than him. So I'm really happy that he's had this month to kind of bounce back from what happened. Yeah. I mean, you know, this is a show where we talk about goals and saves and, you know, it's fun and whatever, but, you know, there are things that are bigger than the game and, you know, these, these types of things, again, you know, having a baby was pretty, pretty special. And, you know, you talk about this, uh, the journey Dan Tensor's on, I mean, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of the, the, the type of thing where, you know, maybe, maybe losing a hockey game isn't the biggest deal. And, and sometimes it's, it's easier to, to keep, to, you know, to, to come back to keep these things in perspective. Cause you know, you can, you can get wrapped up in it pretty quick, you know? Definitely. I think uh, getting down two nothing to, to Regina, you know, and not, not being our best there at home and, and all of a sudden being down, you know, like we had a, our net was pulled in the first round down two games to nothing. They missed an empty net by a foot and a half that would have made it a three nothing series. And could we have come back? Well, now I believe for sure we, we could have because we did in the next round, but I mean, at the time it's, you're not thinking that's a possibility probably. And, and, you know, all of a sudden you tie it up, you win in overtime, and then you win in overtime the next night, and then, you know, you've got a seven-game series with, I don't know how many thousand, 50,000 fans probably came through the gates in Sastel Center. Um, and, you know, it was pretty it's pretty crazy, but there was nights there where you, you do lose, like I remember losing a game or two in that series where, you know, your wife is uh, – your wife is – ready to give birth any minute now and you're I wasn't able to go to a couple of those games because in Regina like that was just too far for me in case she went into labor early that it wasn't going to be possible for me to go to those games and, and have a backup plan in case she called me at six o'clock before a game and said she's going into labor there's just no easy way to get to Edmonton where we were having the baby so um I stayed back and you know watching online and you know with my brother it was uh, it was weird experience to to, to go through it but it, it it did put a perspective in it too where it's like if if we we did lose a game or two and it's like it's not the world isn't over you know the sun came out the next day and um and you live to fight another day and you do what you can with that opportunity and, and that's what our team did and and dan did and and um you know it was pretty cool to have all that stuff happen and then game seven was a monday night and from all accounts, was one of the craziest nights ever in Sastel Center in the Blades' history, and um, with a sold-out 15,000 there. And I wasn't at that game, but I FaceTimed. Uh, luckily, the the coaches FaceTimed me in the locker room for the celebration, and was able to tell the boys how much I loved them and, and thank them for what they did. And uh, on FaceTime, and then had a baby two days later, and and then two more days after that, you know, we're in Red Deer, so. Um, played in Red Deer, playing against Red Deer at home, I should say, but uh, it was <laughs> a lot happening, yeah. So this this series, how would you sum up, in your mind anyway, how your group managed to turn that around? Because 3 nothing, you know, 3-1, people do it. 2 nothing, people do it. 3 nothing, it's extraordinarily rare in any major sport for a reason. So how do you think your group managed to accomplish such a rare feat against a team that is a a very consistent, hard-playing team? Well, it's a good question because there's there's like three or four parts to that 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 I've kind of contemplated over the last few days when 
wrapping your head around it as a manager. I think the first the first part is that there was no that you don't get a result like that if you haven't put in the work all year like our coaches and players did where they made sacrifices all year. We always felt we had an extremely special group of kids with extremely high character. We t- we talked about that at the deadline not making any we added one player who has high character Chase on but we didn't want to make big changes to the group because of what the group was and we believed how special they were and how they'd been so consistent in the regular season and how caring they were for each other. Um, so that's one thing, because I don't think you can cheat the process. If you haven't had that, It's those aren't the teams that generally come back from things like 3 nothing down. I think the leadership with Brennan, uh, our head coach, along with you know Dan DeSilva and Wacey Rabbit, our two assistant coaches, Jeff Harvey, our goalie coach, but you know those guys believed, and they instilled belief in the kids all year. And when we lost that third game, you know, we got down 2 nothing in game four as well. So, like, there was a lot of times where they could have lost belief, but I don't think they ever did. Um, and that, that to me, is all about the process that led us there, not, like, what do we do in those five days where we came back and won those games. I think it was we had built the foundation. We hadn't played nearly to our standard up until game four. Like, we, we just we were averaging like 19 shots a night on net and we averaged 35, I think on the year. So like we Red Deer had played almost a flawless first three games. Like they did not allow an odd man rush in three games. There was no breakaways. We weren't getting inside on them. Um, I think our players were emotionally exhausted from the Regina series. You know, you wake up and you see your highlights on TSN, you see your highlights on Sportsnet. Everyone's talking about how you had 15,000 people and you honestly feel like you've won the Stanley Cup, even though you've just won the first round. And then all of a sudden, three days later, it's like, here's a tough, heavy, defensive-minded team. Uh, And I think our players were kind of, it wasn't a lack of effort in any way. I think it was just like a frustration where they weren't getting to play the type of hockey that they've played all year. And and it resulted in three losses and, and really we didn't play well in any of those games are well enough to win and Red Deer played really good. Um, but I saw a difference. Like there was a couple strategic decisions that Brennan made going into game four that opened the games up a bit. Um, I thought they were brilliant uh, decisions that he made there to, you know, take the old adage. Like if you keep, you know, repeating the same thing over and over again is probably going to get you the same result. And I think he, he decided to open it up and, and it really worked in our favor. Um, and then once we won that first game, there was nothing but belief. And Brennan just kept telling the guys, like, let's have one more day as a family together. Let's earn that by winning one more game and just get it back to Saskatoon. Get it back to Saskatoon for game five. And if we're back in Saskatoon, we're going to win game five. And if we get back, if it's game six, they're going to be tight. They're going to be starting to question themselves. And if it's back home at game seven, then we're home and we've earned that right by having the better record and and we believe and we're a team of destiny. And he really got them to believe in that. And um, those are some of the key reasons. And when you're facing elimination, as we've done now, I think five times this playoff uh, with four games, this series and game seven in the first series coming from uh, where I played tennis as a college athlete and uh, as a junior, I played hockey obviously before that, but when I kind of chose tennis as a, as a competitive sport over hockey uh, at 12, when I had to kind of choose between the two uh, when I was playing both, like to me in tennis, like every Djokovic has won 23 grand slams and you have to win seven matches at a grand slam. And every one of those matches you're facing elimination. So my mentality and, you know, my messaging to the coaches was like, okay, the round of 16 starts 
and game four. And if we win that, then it's the quarterfinals. We win that, it's the semifinals. We win that, it's the finals. It's not like this is a historic thing. We're playing the greatest team ever assembled. It's impossible. It was more like, hey, every team that's won the NCAA championship faces elimination from the first round onto the final. Like, if you lose, you're out. And so, you know, all those things, I think you just you just try and convince yourself. And if you can play to your standard, then you have a chance to win every game. The first three games, we didn't really play to our standard. And and so I don't think we felt like we had given everything we had and we were 0-3. I think we had felt like, I think if we had lost game four, it would have been extremely dejecting for us because we felt we had this extremely special group all year of character kids. We had this extremely special staff and connection between the players and the staff and management, everybody. And to go out like four straight against a team that you finished ahead of in the standings would have been just, I think like it would have made us question a lot of things. So luckily that character prevailed and, and they took that one game at a time and one day left, one more day as a family kind of idea. And, you know, Brennan was the architect of that comeback and, and the players obviously um, believed in his message and families are very, when you have a family, I've had 10 different teams an hour, nine, and there's been varying degrees of that family, but you get leadership like Delagorjandi or where I know your favorite player, Chad, but uh, um, just one of those things where I, I thought it was really interesting in his press conference last night. He said, um, like, there's no clicks on this team. And that's something me and Della talked about years ago. Like, we never wanted that in Saskatoon. We always wanted a situation where, like, 16-year-olds and 20-year-olds are friends and there's no rituals, there's no kangaroo courts, there's no 16-year-olds are, you know, filling up every bottle for all the 20-year-olds and water bottles and all that stuff. Like, we just we don't believe in that organizationally and Della fully bought into that and I think he appreciated that Chase Waters as a leader when he was younger never believed in that either and that's why we were able to be so tight and have 2005s on the ice three of them on the ice with a minute left protecting a lead in game six because our young guys and our old guys are all one big unit and and um that was really really important and and Della I I give a ton of credit to for walking the walk on that because it's really easy at 20 to say that when you're talking to the coaches or me or whoever, but then do it privately is different. But he, he did it. He always walked the walk in terms of no clicks. Everyone's a part of everything. And so that's a long winded answer, but I know there's no easy, like, Hey, we came back because we changed our four check. Like it, that's not how it worked. So um, that's, that's kind of my insight onto why it was, why it happened and, and how we were able to do it. You know, several times there, Colin, you mentioned, you know, Brendan Sawney. And, you know, we had had, you know, Mitch Love on a few times and, you know, always loved the direction that he was taking the blades and, and you know, the culture he was building. And, and those are going to be tough shoes to fill. And it seems like, you know, the blades generally kind of didn't skip a beat and found, a, you know, another excellent, you know, candidate to, to steer the ship in, in, in Brendan Sawney. And, you know, I'm kind of, you know, broad brush. I mean, what's it, what's it been like working with him over the last two years and, and uh, you know, developing the, the culture that he has? Yeah, it's interesting because they're, when you look at Mitch and what he's done in the AHL being coach of the year two years in a row, and obviously I think he's going to be an AHL head coach in no time here. Um, it's, it's really interesting because him and Brennan kind of learned from the same umbrella being in assistance in Everett and playing in Everett and 
learning from Kevin Constantine. So, but as people, I don't think they could be any further apart. Like their personalities are vastly different. Their demeanors are vastly different. Their approaches are vastly different. So, um, they have that commonality and you can even see it in like some of the preparation our team does like the same sheets that Mitch put up on the wall for our players on a game day. They look almost identical to Brennan's because they learned that process, but they both took it in totally different directions that to me worked for their personalities. Like what I love about Brennan, like I I absolutely love working with him. Um, He's someone that I want. I I, obviously he has dreams of, I'm sure. And and I know he does of being a, a pro coach in the NHL and he's going to get there. Uh, He would be a, my ideal guy to have, like forever at the blades like he I, I would love it if he was that guy that built a dynasty here and and, and worked with kids his whole career because i think he's so special at it but i also know that um when you achieve great things you go on to the pros and that's awesome too so but as long as we have him for um you know his first and foremost he's a outstanding person like a great human being i met him uh for the first time a couple summers ago in vancouver out by english bay uh we had a, a coffee out by the the water and I don't think we even talked about hockey for two hours um I think we get along really well because we both have a ton of interest outside of hockey um which isn't always the case with every hockey coach like a lot of hockey coaches are extremely dialed in on as Brennan is dialed in and focused on hockey as well but that's not Brennan Sonny is is a person and and then he happens to be a hockey coach who's great at it but he's a, a husband and a brother a son he and He's a student of history. He absolutely is extremely intelligent. Like uh, one of the most intelligent people I've ever met in any walk of life, not just in hockey. Um, And then also has that process that was drilled into him as a young coach. So he can, he can fuse his intelligence with the, the structure that he learned. And that all those things coupled with the fact that he's like a great human being that like, there's times, you know, his wife is is due here in two months and he's going to be having his first little girl here, a daughter. And uh, I just had my second daughter. And like, there's a time where I'll, you know, maybe your wife's feeling down or, or maybe your wife's sick with something going during a pregnancy and he hears about it because uh, my wife and his wife are really close friends now. And, you know, he instantly, like, no matter what, like picks up the phone and calls you. He's like, he's like, uh, I heard, you know, is everything okay with your wife? Like, you know, he's a great person, like hockey aside. So when you marry all those things, I think it makes for a a wonderful leader. Um, And, you know, he's someone that takes time to get to know, like, I don't, he's not the kind of guy that's going to walk into a room and and the first time you ever meet him, if he's in front of a group, it's not like he's going to, you know, it's not like he's going to lead the greatest uh, victory speech in history, just out of sheer, charisma and everything like he's a person that he builds his mileage over time by showing the people that he coaches how much he cares about them and how much he can help them and he works on it all day every day and that's where you get the mileage that you get out of him here and um you know that's where when we sat and talked for two hours the first time we met we were talking about how we both visited auschwitz and at different times in our life and and how how that day for both of us kind of affected our lives when you get to see something so horrific and real from history that, um, you know, changes you when you go there. And, and those kind of things, like maybe, I don't know, maybe there's some people in hockey that would be like, why is this guy want to talk about Auschwitz for, for an hour instead of 
instead of like what he'll do for the team. But that's Brennan. You get to know him first and you build that mileage and then you give him the, the runway to take it from there. And that's what he's done and incredibly proud of him. So he's, he's awesome. Colin, when you were, you know, looking at the sold out crowd and the energy uh, and excitement around the team and seeing, you know, the success in these game sevens and now advancing to the conference final for the first time since the early nineties, do you reflect back? I mean, it's been 10 years since your family bought the team. I think you've been general manager, what, seven or eight um, of those years? Six or seven, I think. I can't remember. Yeah. I think yeah. Bob Woods, uh, after Bob Woods left, he had, he was there two years. So, yeah, it'd be six six or seven years as GM, yeah. So it, it's been a process. And, and the Blades were in a tough place when you guys took over, coming off the Memorial Cup and some disappointments and, and a, a very long rebuild you had to go through. And then... COVID interrupting, you know, Kirby Doc going to the NHL early and COVID interrupting your other opportunities in the playoffs. And it probably starting to feel like, are we ever going to get the payoff? Did you allow yourself while well, you haven't reached the ultimate goal yet, obviously of getting that championship. Did you allow yourself to take a moment and reflect back on how far you guys have been able to come as an organization in that time? Yeah. I mean, it, <laughs> sometimes when those game sevens and these things have been happening with so much going on, it's been like, I've been almost like a spectator in a way where I haven't really absorbed what's happening so much. Like I'm just trying to work on the logistics of like, Oh my God, this just happened. Like, what do I do tomorrow? Like, do I go to Saskatoon? Do I stay with my babe daughter for a day and wait? You know, it was like, there was so much going on that I didn't really have the opportunity to like really bask in it too much. But um, yeah, like, you have to enjoy the successes because like there was, there was a time, like I, I think we have the best winning percentage in the Eastern conference over the last six years. I think we're like a six sixty eight or something like that. But like people don't even don't realize that at all. Like it's our funny, like our fans are coming up to me at the intermissions right now being like, must be great that you guys are finally good or, and all that. I'm like, part of me is like, geez, like we just had the winningest goalie in WHL history. Do you think that happens? Because we, we lost all the time like we've been winning for a long time but because of covid because of these things and you don't have the long playoff run because you know we lost we lost in a really tight series when mitch was here with kirby in his draft year in, in the second round in six games to pa who won the championship the next year covid took away playoffs the bubble we were great but nobody cared nobody watched it was just basically for the kids and then last year we lost in the first round in the four or five matchup so I get it. I know why people think that we're finally just good, but there's always a little bit of me that's like, hey, we've been good for a long time, and I, I have that pride because I before we were good, I I couldn't go anywhere without hearing that I was the wrong guy for the job, and people didn't want me running. People didn't believe in me, or people thought, like, why is this owner's son or this old folk singer or tennis player, or whatever they wanted to say, like, why is he here, and and that, that was definitely tough. Like there was times where, you know, it's like I'm in a city living in a different city. That's not the city I'm from with my wife about to have our first kid. And it's like, nobody in the city wants me here yet. You have to just keep believing in what you're building. Cause we knew what we were building and we, we, you know, not every person in the city is fully educated on what your depth chart looks like going forward or, or what your winning percentages or anything like that. They, people are, they'll see the headlines or they'll see like the, the key thing they want to look at. So there was times for sure where that was really difficult mentally to, to go through, but you know, I, I credit a big time Hilti in terms of 
being that rock for me as my kind of right-hand man in all things Blades, now Rush, now Arena, uh, baseball coming up next year. Like, he's um, not only, like, a lifelong best friend now, but he's also an extremely talented hockey guy, extremely talented um, sports person and just a great, great human being. And he kind of, him and Dan were instrumental in making sure that, like, during those tough times that they said, like, they they knew we were on the right path and to let it don't cheat the process by here, trade two first round picks so we can sneak into eighth place and get the fans off our back for why didn't we make the playoffs for four years? Like that kind of thing. So they believed in what we were doing as a, I would say as a trio, the three of us, Dan and Hilti and myself. So um, always indebted to those two guys for that. And uh, the, the most fun part of this success now is seeing Hilti who's been with the organization for, I don't know, 20 something years, seeing the tears streaming down his face last night after winning that game. And geez, he gave me a bear hug. Like he's, we call him the honey bear. He's a big man. And he, I think I jumped up into his arms. I'm like six foot two. He's probably like five, eight or nine. And I jumped up in his arms and he grabbed me so tight. I still, I think I like broke a rib or something because I'm feeling it today. Like I'm feeling every time I take a deep breath, but that's the passion Hilti has. And uh, so, you know, it was an unlikely trio. I'd say the three of us, like Hilti was a trainer Dan was a disc jockey or radio host at Edmonton, and I was at the time like a folk singer, tennis player guy. So it wasn't the most likely trio, and certainly a lot of people didn't believe we would be able to build a good team and a sustainable team. But, you know, we just laughed today. We're on our way to Alberta Cup. We have all of our draft picks. We have a first rounder, a second rounder, three third rounder, three or four fourths, and we have six or seven really good 19 year olds and they're all going to be playing in the league as twenties next year. And we can only keep three. I think we have eight. Um, so that's a tough choice, but we also have two starting goalies and a really good young one. Like we've got tons of assets and we didn't blow anything up to get where we are. So I think we feel like we did it the right way and we endured the pain that maybe we had to go through five, six years ago. Well, and you know, you mentioned the, the on ice success had been already starting to come, but one of the realities when you take over, you know, you're the general manager and president, but, you know, the on-ice product is only a part of that reality. And the Saskatoon Blades just didn't have the standing in the city that you would think they they would. The, you know, the fans were wasn't cool. engaged. They weren't cool at all. They, like, no. it just wasn't cool to be a Blades fan. Like, yeah. our fans, I love our older fans. But people in the building. You know, that... Yeah, and, that's the crazy and, part to me. Like, we used to have nothing but senior citizens at our games and some kids we did five dollar kids tickets in hopes that we would draw families and, and it worked a little bit but every time you turn the music up to get a better atmosphere like a 70 year old fan would email me during the game saying turn the music down this is not a rock oh, concert God. i know that and from even back you in know the that. days it was, yeah. yes. so you're trying to build something but unfortunately at the time our, our core audience was senior citizens so it's like, do we just turn the music up and piss off the loyal older people that are coming because they've been coming for 25 years? Or do we like build something new and maybe lose a few older customers that think it's too noisy or something? And those are the things we wrestled with off the ice. But seeing like 10,000 fans last night, you know, we've had the top eight attendances in the entire WHL playoffs for um, our eight home games. So, um those are pretty, it's pretty cool to see 10,000 people where you got like 30 year old guys hugging each other and high fiving last night where it's like, where I didn't even know those people existed. Like I knew they kind of did, but I never saw them there. And it was one thing to see them with Bedard. Like 
we had an unbelievable crowd for game seven in the first round with 15,000 people there. But part of your mind is thinking like, oh, they're having a good time. They're high-fiving, but they all came to see maybe Bedard. And then when 10,000 people come to a junior game in a city of 225,000 and stay till the buzzer knowing that the parking's going to be a nightmare to get out of and are hugging each other and there's no Bedard, then it's like, wow, this is real. Like it, it's finally cool to be a Blades fan again. And that's, I can't tell you how gratifying that is. Yeah, I mean, you know, regular listeners of the show, you know, know that my love of 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 the what you guys have done with attendance up there and and, and filled the barn and and you're right, it, you know, you, you you come for Bedard but but stay for this, you know, very entertaining Saskatoon Blades team and was really excited to see what they what you guys were going to do in in the second round and 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 they came back and you know, I mean, you you've had I mean, better crowds. I mean, I, I don't know if, if any Blades team had filled that barn and, you know, going back, you know, 20 years, whatever. I, th- I think Les told us about some, some of the times, you know, in the, in the playoffs when, when they had big crowds. But, I mean, in, in, in your tenure, I mean, did you think you could ever put 14,000 people in there? No, honestly, I didn't. I just thought there was a cap to how many people wanted to come to junior games, even if it was – I thought the peak was basically what we had when we played – PA in the second round in the 2019 playoffs because we were a really good team. I think we were the third best team in the league standings wise, but we had to play PA in the second round because of that divisional format they had back then. And so you had like one in three playing in the second round in the whole league and PA's fans travel, which is amazing for the rivalry. Our fans travel there, but there's more of them and more seats at our building for their fans to come. So like when we were getting 10,500 or maybe even 11,000 for those games in round two, like that was a fever pitch that I thought was like the peak because I thought we had a couple thousand fans from PA. It's a natural big rival. It'll get a lot of the hockey fans who aren't maybe specifically Blades fans. So it's like, hey, there's a game six with the Blades and the Raiders in the second round. That seems like a big event. And I remember hitting refresh on the Ticketmaster app that we have as, you know, management. And I was like, oh my God, we're going to hit 10,000. And then um, having hit that now, like, I don't know how many times in the last uh, month with the two regular season games and all the Bedard games in the first round. And then this round again, like it's been crazy. We've had 76 or 77,000 fans through our building in the playoffs alone. So I just didn't think that would ever happen. And it's kind of like a dream come true, but it's also, it's not something you want to be too deluded on because we could be the best team in the league next year. And there's no way we could ever replicate what happened with, Bedard being a once-in-a-lifetime player and generating that much interest, Game Sevens comebacks, like we could we could win it all next year, and I don't think it'll ever be like this when with the when, in terms of like that many people coming through. It's just been a uh, a, a glut of good fortune. For I, I've often said though, I think you know I look back on the Oilers in 2006 and the Flames in 2004, uh, the Canucks in 2010 that sometimes a fan base that's been getting a little disengaged needs something to grab onto to yes. get that to get that next generation. So, you know, this is a great step towards pulling the next generation in. What do you think you guys have to do? And I'm sure this is part of your off-season strategy, so it's not, you know, every, you haven't figured it all out yet. But, you know, what do you need to do as an organization when you have a chance to grab these fans to try to make more of them? You'll never keep them all, but more of them a part of the organization going forward. Well, I mean, firstly, in this day and age, you've got 
way more data now to market to and you got way more people like everyone who buys a ticket on Ticketmaster as an email address these people have come to a Blades game or two or three or four now and you've suddenly got a much bigger group to work with um, so it's on the business staff and us to come up with really exciting game nights and fun things to bring people out during the regular season and I think it's just it starts now that like there's thousands of kids in Saskatoon who are idolizing the Blades again so engaging with them, keeping the kids' tickets really cheap at five bucks and just having people uh, want to bring their kids because they're fans too now and it's not it's not a chore to go. It's fun. Uh, our in-game production has gotten way better and I think that was our biggest emphasis internally was we knew we were getting those two sellout crowds for Bedard at the end of the regular season and it was like unprecedented to have. But it was like, let's not rest on our laurels here. Like, let's put on the best halftime or intermission shows possible. Let's have our in-game guy be on his absolute A-game. Let's have really cool contests and prizes. Let's make sure our music's loud and our DJ's got an awesome set list. Like, we wanted to... And then let's make sure our kiosks, like, we have merchandise kiosks, not just a giant line at the Frozen Pond store, but let's have, like, four or five shadow merchandise stands throughout the building so that it's not a piss-off to have people line up for an hour to buy a hat. Like... We wanted to put our best foot forward so that people who came said, like, I came to see Bedard, but, like, wow, I might go to a playoff game. That was fun. And and certainly that I owe uh, a lot of uh, respect and, and gratitude to Tyler Warwick uh, in the business department uh, with with uh, the Blades in the Rush for um, being the catalyst of those things and just uh, an incredible guy that we're extremely lucky to have, um, you know, heading up our business operation and, and – he's very progressive he he looks for he's not scared to do stuff that people would think like oh that's maybe out there or maybe that's you know he he stands by what he believes and and what we believe in as an organization and he he empowers his team to do it so he's been a big part of uh not only having these crowds there but making them want to come back yeah i mean that's got to be a really interesting you know an exciting challenge in that you know, in theory, I mean, again, you, you guys have, you know, a, a bigger barn than a junior team could really want or need or, or, or even use. And so in theory, like you have no no ceiling, no cap on on how many butts you can put in seats. Again, you we, we compared to, to Prince Albert before you mentioned a couple thousand fans. That's the entire Art Hauser can come to your game and, and, and you can absorb that, you know, and so it's like. You know, in some ways, like there's no there's no limit to you know each individual game that you you guys could 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 fill with with stand with uh, fans in the stands. It's got to be really kind of a, a unique you know challenge. Yeah, it's kind of a double edged sword because for all those years, you, your biggest attendance in some of those years was one night you'd get five thousand fans or six thousand for your biggest night or a special event night or something. But like you just wished you had a barn that had like ten thousand less seats because it would create a better atmosphere and there wouldn't be the morgue feeling that we used to have eight, nine, seven years ago when we were getting nobody at the games. But now it's also the opportunity that like, we now know that 14,500 or 15,000 people can come to a blitz game. If you give them the right reason, maybe that's a generational player. Maybe that's uh, a game seven or whatever it is. There, there's reasons that people come. So th that capacity um, now becomes an opportunity instead of a curse. Um, so it's, it's one of those things, but it also is really difficult because demand is something that like business 101, obviously you need to have, you know, if you want demand, then you, 
you can't have an unlimited supply and there'll be no demand. And we have an unlimited supply during the regular season. So nobody really thinks like, I got to get my blades tickets today for the game tomorrow. Like you just, a lot of our fans walk up to the gate and will buy tickets at the door. So like that's, it's changing a little bit online with that, but it's still like, you can't really create a fake demand when you know that there's going to be 10,000 empty seats, even on the good nights. So you have to make the atmosphere as best you can close the upper bowl and hold to that where you maybe open one section, but you keep it to the lower bowl. And our, I really like our atmosphere when we have 5,000 people there. I think it's, it's, it's a great atmosphere when the lower bowl is full and the upper bowl is closed off. Um, so that's been an improvement too. And, and, that was a battle for two or three years to like, do we open up the top? We had a bunch of season ticket holders that had been sitting up there and we'd had sections with like eight people in them. And it looks like an empty building and everyone's spread out, but they didn't want to leave those seats. So like we had people threatening, they'll never come to a game again. If we close the upper bowl, cause they like sitting up there, it wasn't as crowded and they had their own row. And we made the hard decision to just be like, I'm sorry, we're going to move you down. If you don't want to stay, then I'm sorry. I guess you're not staying, but we had to do something to address the atmosphere. And that was with the curtaining off of the upper bowl, except for special nights. So um, that's one way to create a little bit of demand, but um, uh, yeah, it's always a work in progress with a big building. Now looking on the ice again, you guys don't get a chance to, to rest and, and to celebrate and to, you know, think about this historic achievement you got to go on and play one of the top junior teams in the country. And you mentioned that the Blades, you guys didn't go over the top adding, but everybody who's left loaded up and sold a lot of future to do so. So just starting with Winnipeg, a team you got points against in three out of the six games, won two of them. How do you view this matchup, A? And B, how do you guys avoid the letdown that you saw after game seven against Regina and the first couple games against Red Deer. Now that you match up with Winnipeg and can't afford to get behind again. Yeah, I think it's, it's a interesting really to think about because um, both series we've gotten down two nothing and three nothing. And, and certainly I think one of the best parts about this group is that they'll learn, like they learn from what they do and they'll change, change certain things up and whether it's, do we practice uh, tomorrow and, or do we just give them two full days off or do we skate in the morning or whatever we think is going to give them the most jump for game one? Uh, certainly we played 14 games and they played 10 and um, some of those 10 games were fairly, I mean, I guess they didn't really have too many lopsided games in that mix against Med Hat hang, hung pretty tough. Uh, but, you know, we had a lot of overtime games and a lot of crazy uh drama so we probably have been emotionally through it a little bit more but we're also i think at a place where we kind of feel like we're playing with house money here like they don't have a draft pick in the next four drafts i don't think maybe one or two picks here and there they don't they've traded a lot of prospects like they they went all into the extreme that i've never seen any team do in history so this is this is on them they've got all the pressure in the world to try and bring that home with with the amount they invested in in terms of future assets and and they're the heavy favorite, obviously, being that they're rested and they're the top team in the country. So I think our guys are going to go in with the same mentality they always have, which is they have complete and total belief in each other. Um, they don't. They they believe they can beat the ice. They they know they they we've done it before. We we match up fairly well against them. They're really skilled. They're really fast. We're skilled and fast. Um, 
And then in the playoffs now, it just comes down to there's fatigue, there's injuries, there's goaltending, there's all these different wrinkles that can come up and um, change the series as it evolves. So um, certainly going into Winnipeg game one, like we're going to have to have a better start to the series than the last two, obviously. Um, but that I trust Brendan completely that he'll have them with the right mentality to seeing what we did wrong in the last two series at the start and getting off to a better start and you know, getting a split in Winnipeg, I think would be huge uh, coming back to Saskatoon. And that'll be, you know, that's, that's something that every team on the road wants to do when, when you don't have home ice. So, um, or we just want to get down two or three, nothing. And just have them right where we want them. I mean, maybe that's, maybe that's it. Maybe we just need to always be facing elimination and then we get our best, but I don't think lightning is going to strike three times. So we have to obviously be prepared for uh, an extremely talented team. That's going to have a deeper, and higher end talent level than any team we've played uh, so far. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, you know, you talk about being, you know, maybe maybe digging a big hole and and then pulling out of it. I mean, you know, as a Kansas City Chiefs fan, I'm thinking about that's, uh, you know, it's worked worked for them over the years. But uh, you know, and you know, I love Delagorjandier, but he's no Patrick Mahomes, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, you want to, you, you just don't want to you know, pull a rabbit out of a hat too many times in a row because it's going to get to a time where it's like, okay, we're down three, nothing in this series. And we we're on our 17th playoff game. And, you know, that's just not going to be wholly likely to create history two times in a row. I mean, of all the groups I've seen, this would be the one group that for who knows could do it, but certainly Winnipeg's a different level of team that we've played. They're a different talent level. They've got NHL drafted players on their third and fourth lines. Um, great defense, really good goalie, um, three centers that are one, two, three, as good as there is in the league. Um, you know, you've got Austin Chuck, you've got Savoy, Geeky, like these are all future NHLers. So our guys know the task though. And, you know, our, our first two centers, most nights are 155 pounds with Weens and Wong and they don't, they don't, they don't give up anything in terms of will. They don't give up anything in terms of compete. So I never bet against these guys because they're they're extremely resilient and they want it really, really bad. And I think wanting it more than the other team is there's going to be no group that wants it more than ours. I mean, you know, that that being said, yeah, they they made a lot of, you know, they, they, they've bet a lot of poker chips on, on this season, but – I mean, you guys, you, the Blades are the second best team in the East. I mean, this is the this is the top two seeds on that side of the bracket. I mean, it's not it's not that David and Goliath, is it? I mean, this is a. I mean, obviously, you know, you, I'm, I'm sure you think this Blades team is good, but I mean, they're, they're, that that gap isn't that significant, is it? I don't think so. I think the points were what ten points, maybe uh, uh, dividing us or whatever, but. Um... We also went through a time where we had like five or six guys that are key guys injured for like months on end where we had Pillar, Weens, Sidorov, like Parr. We had like five or six guys that were just out for a long time. And I think we had a little 500 run there for a month and a half. And that was great to keep our head above water because we got guys like Hanson and Parr and Keller and these young guys got to play up in the lineup and got to experience playing top lines because they were the next men up. So that bodes really well because I think those guys playing in the third and fourth line roles now are excelling there. Um, but yeah, we have, we have full belief in what we are as a team. Uh, we're going to be 
a little bit we play a little bit differently than than other teams we have a lot of skill and speed you know brennan uh knows how to adjust like i i handed him eight left defensemen as a as a manager and most most coaches would nothing but whine about that and he came up with a system to make them thrive on their half the guys playing their off wing we had mostly left shots up front as well he put every single player on their off wing all year and has continued to do so and he had a an idea that he learned uh, last summer that he thought would help our offensive zone, uh, you know, how we transition out of the D zone to the O zone. And he felt putting everybody on their off wing was the right decision. And he was like, give me the character and the right people. I don't care what hand they shoot. I'll, I'll work on that. And that's, that's a leader to me. You talk about like those evolving strategies and you've been doing this job, as we said, for six, seven years now. How much of it has surprised you? Uh, how much do you try to find that next thing that, you know, there's a lot of traditional people in junior hockey. I mean, that, that's not a criticism. It's just a reality. There's a lot of people that came up in, in a traditional route. You mentioned how unconventional you guys are as a group. So you talk about your coach trying to find these, you know, these new ideas for how to take advantage of certain situations. How much has that been, you know, a part of your strategy to try to find an avenue that someone else isn't utilizing or get ahead of the game in some way so that you can find an advantage that you might have had on somebody doing it the more traditional way. Yeah, it's that's kind of just in, ingrained in my DNA as a, as a person and when you're heading up an organization and you have the privilege of doing that. Um, I think it would be disingenuous to have the organization operate in any way that wasn't in the manner of which like was being truest to yourself as a, as a leader and, and what you, everybody within that, you know, food chain is going to be, is going to have their own unique way of doing things. But I think, you know, being innovative, being open-minded, um, being kind of in terms of like when we first got there, I felt like I could not believe how old school the, the league was or the, the just general way of of it was like I just was shocked like I I kind of knew a little bit because my brother played in the Western League as a goalie my dad played in the Western League as a goalie and I've been around a lot of hockey rinks my whole life and and I I kind of thought it might be a little less but I I thought like a it's it's alarming how many people there are that are extremely old school and just this is the way I learned this is the way I had to do it so this is the way it's going to be and then it has evolved I think at first I was a really big outcast and I think there's been a wave of people that have come in from different with different ideas, uh, maybe more progressive in how they look at the sport or how they look at athletes or whatever it is. And now it's not, I don't think it's as different as it was maybe 10 years ago, but certainly there's organizations that are far more older school than us and some are super successful, some aren't. Uh, just like some progressive and new school organizations are successful and some aren't. I, I think as long as for me, everybody's empowered to be themselves, be a great person. Um, that's our biggest thing in all of our, all of our businesses is be a great person. Like don't, don't have anyone on the team or in the management or selling tickets that you wouldn't uh, call to take care of your kid at three in the morning. If something happened and you needed that, like you want people that are, genuinely great people and empower them to come up with great ideas and think outside the box. And then since that's how I've always thought as a person, that's how I was raised. 
Um, that's where I've got successes in my life from being myself. And um, that's, that's kind of, you want to just look at the organization to me in a way that funnels that down so that everybody has that, that mentality. And, and, and if that's the case, then I think at least if anything, you're going to be authentic and get the most out of yourself and, and not trying to be something you're not like, I'm not, if I go try and be uh, Daryl Sutter or something, it's just not going to, it's like, we would be very, very different in terms of our upbringing, our, our experience, our age, how we look at things. And I, I can't be a tenth of the Daryl Sutter that Daryl Sutter would be in, in hockey. So why would I try and be him? So I would rather be 100% of who I am and, and have our own people do that same thing. So that's where a guy like Brennan was extremely appealing to me because I think he really believes in that in that uh, same ideal ideology. Yeah, is that kind of the message even, you know, top down to all the players? Like I think, you know, your story, and I look at a guy like Wong who – when that trade happens, you have a bunch of people going, oh, you know, Doc asked to go, and they get Wong, and he's not going to be as good as Doc, and Wong hasn't quite lived up to his billing, and then he comes in, and now he's your leading scorer, and he's one of the leading scorers of the playoffs, you know, given an opportunity to be himself. Is that kind of, you know, what you try to do, how you try to approach it throughout the entire organization? For sure, and Trevor Wong is, like, amongst the top, three most popular players I've had in, in a decade here. Like with fans, it's incredible. Everybody's favorite player is Wong. Maybe Spencer Chagru now after the last couple of games of it. But uh, like Trevor Wong is everybody on our staff's favorite player. He's almost every season ticket holder's favorite player. He's an unbelievably good person. And yeah, when you trade Doc for him, it's like, well, Doc wanted a trade. It's like, then if that's, if you do, if you think Saskatoon is not the place for you, then that's okay. Like everybody's got their own path that they want to be on. And, and you bring in a guy like Wong, it took him a couple months, I think, cause he was so shocked by the trade to, to really go all in. But you know, in that last year and a half, like there is no, I guess it's two hockey seasons now. Like he's going to go down as an all time player. Like he's an unbelievable player. He's an unbelievable leader. And as good as he is on the ice, he's better off the ice. And, and so, you make a trade like that and yeah, there's going to be some people that say, well, why did Colton Doc want a trade or something? It's like lots of people want trades for lots of different reasons. Um, and a guy like Wong, I, I think uh, he's an extremely special person and, and Saskatoon, I think will hold a, a special place in his heart forever. And we've tried to treat him incredibly well and, and he's re- repaid it with how he's performed and how he's, how he conducts himself off the ice. And um, yeah, it's, those are the parts of junior hockey that, that are complicated. And sometimes, you know, the whole stories don't get to come out in terms of, um, you know, trades or things like that, or why do you do certain decisions, make certain decisions. But uh, that's, that's kind of my, my perspective on it. You know, you mentioned Spencer Chagru and, and, you know, kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum of, of visibility and and uh, and embrace, you know, if the fan fan base embracing him. Then uh, then then Wong is uh, a guy like Shagru who has had to fight and claw for for everything he's ever had, and you know, trying trying to stay at this level and and stay on the Saskatoon Blades. And I mean, no one saw his production here in these last two, you know, game sevens. I mean, nobody could have ever expected that, right? <laughs> 
I, I don't know. I mean, there's only one. I say this all the time. I've been saying this for like three years. There's only one Shug in the whole world. There's just one guy like him. He's one of the more unique people you'll ever meet. We thought, like, what you're seeing now, we saw in Bantam, but he was like five foot four. And his brother was a goalie. I think he was drafted pretty high by Vancouver. And his brother's like 6'2". So we're like, if this guy gets to six feet even, he's going to be like a pro. But, like, he never grew. He, he's like five, six and a half, maybe five, seven. And as a defenseman in our league, unless you're like Zellweger or one of those guys, it's it's definitely not easy. But he's made himself an indispensable part of that group. And he played center a lot this year, which is not easy for a defenseman. But he was shifting from center to D shift to shift like whenever Brennan needed a centerman that he knew was going to be super responsible and do the right things he would call him up and then two shifts later be playing on D so but the production he's gotten like the, the three goals in game sevens is just kind of the stuff of movies like he had one goal in 150 games I think in his career before this and now he has three in game sevens and you know but it's not shocking in the same way because he has sneaky skill he always has but he just really has never probably seen one second of power play time in his career. And he's just, his job is mostly, he, he gets killed. Like he, nobody gets killed more than that guy. Like every single game, someone takes a run at him because he's an easy target. He's small. He's got a little goofy look on his face where he's like, he, he just makes you want to hit him. Like he's just, he's got one of those looks on his face. It's so funny. It's just one of those guys that if I was playing against him, like as a guy who's taller, I would just be like, I just want to cross check him in the head just because he would just bother me the way he plays and like the way he looks out there, but he has that, he draws more penalties per minute than any player in the league, except for Connor Bedard, according to the stat service we use per minute. So he doesn't play a lot of minutes compared to some of those guys, but like guys just, he is naturally on the other team. Don't like him. And it's been, he's been an absolute pleasure to have, and he's clearly thriving now. I'd be remiss on that note about uh, guys wanting to hit him. If I didn't ask you about how I heard you on, um, Bob Stoffer's show in Edmonton and the topic of fighting in, in junior hockey came up and you took a fairly, you know, plain stance that you, you, you'd be happy as he had gone. Uh, and you don't think that's necessarily shared uh, by your colleagues unanimously, but do you think that's the direction we are heading? And is that a direction you'd be happy to see it go? I don't know. Uh, I don't know if it's heading that way. I think obviously Quebec's going that way, but that might be more governmental pressure and stuff like that. Quebec's got different different governance than we have, but that's just my personal opinion, but I, I had that same opinion 10 years ago when we first got the team, and I I personally have no interest in seeing like bare-knuckle fighting amongst student-athletes that are here on scholarships. Like, I, I don't... My opinion on it is, like, if NFL players who are... Uh, and NBA players and guys that are 260 pounds and full of adrenaline and the world's greatest, biggest, toughest athletes, if they can resist punching each other in the face with bare knuckles, then like I'm, we could probably do it. Like, I, I don't know why we would ever want a player concussed over like you're a hockey player. You don't have to be a UFC fighter and even UFC fighters wear gloves. Like, I don't know why you would want that. So I always tell our parents, like anytime you're recruiting a kid, like I, I have zero intention of ever seeing these guys fight. There are fights occasionally. And, um, we probably are the lower end in the league just because our teams are generally built a little bit more speed skill than big tough. But um, we've had fights. We've had guys that fight quite a bit in the past, uh, Riley McKay, guys like that. But um, I don't know. I, I don't think 
I think there's a point where you can restrain yourself from taking off your gloves and your helmet and punching each other in the face. I get, I get gloves to the face. I get punching after the whistle. I get all the stuff that you would get in any other contact sport. But if those guys can resist the urge to take their helmets off and have a, have a, a UFC fight with no gloves in the middle of the field and they're being paid $10 million, then why would we have our, our student athletes do that? That's, that's my opinion, but I'm sure it's a bit of a dissenting view in terms of the average, the average team. I also wanted to ask, because I spend most of my time broadcasting when I do get to these days in the younger age group, and I get to see a reasonable amount of the uh, next draft classes. So what's your feel? I mean, we're not that far away, and you mentioned having a lot of picks. What's your feel about this year's class? Um, it's probably – there's, there's you know, a group of probably 8 to 10 really – elite high-end players I think are kind of clearly stratified themselves in that top 10 pick area. And then I think there's a really large group of 25 guys that could be in any order, um, depending on needs, depending on, you know, who sees them in what day and what light. Um, I don't think it's the deepest draft I've ever seen. Uh, if I'm being honest, I don't think it's like, but then again, it's, it's always relative to how you're, peers do like if you can get a player in the seventh round that outperforms everybody else three rounds ahead of them then you've won whether that guy goes out as a hall of famer or just a good western leaguer that'll remain to be seen and sometimes it's the years we think are the weaker drafts that you look back in five years and you're like how many of those guys are signed to nhl guys uh and it sometimes surprises you and sometimes the can't miss guys aren't even playing hockey at 18 or 19 so we don't really know until then but i'd say overall it's uh a fairly average group, and that's not an insult. Just like it's not a terrible crop, and it's not it's not the 05 group. It's probably somewhere in between. You know, Colin, you you opened up earlier, and I, re- I really appreciate that about some of the some of the struggles early on with uh, you know people kind of t- looking at you a little funny as far as your background and you know did you earn your position. You know, and there had and there was definitely on ice struggles. You know, it was a long, it was a long slog after that. You know, twenty thirteen Memorial Cup. I mean, was there times when when you questioned yourself if if you were the right guy for the job? I mean, you know, you you mentioned you know you, you just had to have belief in in your process, but I mean, we all have you know self doubt on we're we're doing the right things. I mean, what what was that struggle like when when you were trying to? you know, convince yourself that, that you belonged in this role? Um, certainly like there's, there's different levels of that. Like there's, there's the, like the negativity that can creep in and you think you're doing the right thing and you think you're making the right choices and, um, you're believing in a long-term plan, but the results aren't there short-term. So you can certainly question whether you should have changed the plan or had a different plan. Um, there's the other side too, which is like, you, you know, I, I personally, like I've, I have suffered from depression for a long time. So I'm someone that mental health is always kind of at the forefront for me of my mind. And like my current level of happiness is always kind of on my mind. And I'm not like shy about talking about it or ever if, if players or anyone asks, like it's not something I hide from, but that's like six years ago. That's where it's like, it wasn't so much. Can I do this? It's like, is it worth it? Like, is it, I think the plan is going to work, but like, is it worth the, is it worth the like 
the vitriol from people that you've never met before because you didn't make the playoffs seven years ago or something like, is that worth it? Or is it just, um, is it just going to take too long before your vision can come to fruition? And I always did believe in our vision though. Like I just wouldn't have done it if I didn't believe in our vision and had a plan and you have to adjust your plan all the time. But, um, it's important for sure to, um, it's important for sure to have people around you that, um, not only, um, believe in you but also don't just enable you like they they question things or if they think a direction that we've taken is not the right one that they'll be open to give their feedback and it's a it's a collaboration not not a dictatorship for me so um that's how i kind of look at it and then yeah i I always kind of knew we were on the right path and you could see in those years like the last year we missed the playoffs like you knew we had kirby coming as a 17 year old and nolan meyer coming as a 17 year old and Robbins as a 16, we had all these great players coming and it was just one year shy. So it wasn't like I should just quit. I knew we had all these great players coming. And I think one of the appeals that Mitch had coming in that year was he knew that he knew how good the group was going to be as well. And then when we got 99 points that year, it wasn't like a shock. Mitch said in his first press conference, like I took this job because I know how good this team's going to be and, and, and they're ready to, to take the big step. So, um, you know, maybe if we had faltered that year and missed the playoffs, I would have lost all belief in what we'd planned, but I, I never did get to that point. Um, I always kind of thought, like, just keep your head held high and do the right things, be a good person, and not be too worried about what some Twitter Twitter troll or someone's emailing you or whatever uh, angry about. Um, you know, at least they care about the team, I guess. So that was that's always the, the one thing you can take from a, an angry fan or many angry fans on i i appreciate you talking about your own journey with that and with mental health because there's not enough people that are you know in positions to influence or in positions to reach others that are, are willing to be vulnerable and do that and so many of us go through it um but not enough of us talk about it and you know i think that message really matters and and, and it matters I'm sure, you know, you're able to have those kinds of conversations with the, the young men on your team because chasing a dream, like they are, it can be awesome, but can also really test your mental health. So uh, I'm, I'm glad that... Uh, sure. And it's not just in the bad with... times too, right? Like it's not yeah. just, uh, it's not like we've had lots of players with who have had depression and anxiety issues, especially in the last four or five years. It's really increased and, uh, or or it's always been that way, but now there's more people willing to ask for help about it and... I'm not a psychologist or anything like that, but I can always share my experience. And it's like, Hey, you don't have to, you know, you can talk about it. Hey, you can, you can get three goals in a game and feel like shit the next day. That's normal. Like that's not, you're not a freak because you're not on cloud nine. And the next morning you're wondering why, you know, why aren't I feeling great? Why am I still down today? Even though I had a great game or it doesn't have to be that you're depressed because you haven't had a point in 10 games. Like, I could be depressed the day after a game seven that we won. It's just if you live with depression for 10, 20 years and it's part of your kind of identity and you have ways to deal with it and ways to help it and talk to people about it or medication or whatever, there are, there's so many ways to help. Um, at least like that's where you're letting the light in, in my opinion. And so like if you can provide that to some players that are going through that or a player, you can make a big difference in their life, at least maybe encouraging them to it's okay to go get talk to a talk to a, a psychologist or a psychiatrist or go get help and and put it out there like you don't have to be drowning in it and 
hopefully if if people like our players if they know that it doesn't have to dominate your life or you don't have to it doesn't have to be the stigma that you carry around that you're the depressed player or the de- like it's just we all have our things in life and um i think that's a big part of my job to me is to make sure all our players are as happy as they can be and in, in thriving and not everybody's going to be thriving all the time even if they're playing well it's there's other stuff going on in people's lives that no one has any idea about so just encouraging people to be open talk about it and um and our coaches are really great with that they we've had several instances in the last three or four years where we've had players that were clearly not doing great and and it's never like oh fuck why isn't this player doing this better or why are they not working this hard or why do they look disengaged and of skate in the morning like they're always like hey i think they need a mental health tune-up or they need a check-in and that's really important to me to have that um, layer of support with the coaches because they're the ones dealing with the players um, on a daily basis you know one one more thing that's you know always always been there but now we're society a little more comfortable and talking about it bringing to the forefront you know and this is more of a, you know, a statement than a question but you guys did a really good job on your pride jerseys this year. Those were really, really sharp jerseys, and and and, uh, and it's it's a it's a cool initiative that you know the teams are are doing, or or, or a lot of the teams anyway. And and I thought I, I just thought those jerseys were great. Yeah, they were really cool. Like with the bl- the blades and the rush, we did our pride night, and like it was like amongst the more disappointing like experiences I've had in sports was like the amount of fans that were like going on Facebook and Twitter and just like thousands going like, I, I swear 90% of them wouldn't even been from Saskatoon. They're just people that jump onto whatever cause they can online. But like, it was like, I'll never come to another game. This is, I'm canceling my tickets. Like we'd have all these people emailing, like furious that we were doing it. And it's like, you know what? Like if those are the type of that don't want to come like please don't come i think our, our business will survive without without you like if you're going to be that intolerant and that hateful about especially in a league that has an openly gay player and certainly more players than him who are gay that aren't open uh, uh about it like based on the number of kids that are in the league like it's 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 asinine to think that you wouldn't um show your support to them but there's certain walks of people that find that to be highly offensive and wrong or whatever it is and they don't want to participate but that was really disappointing that we had like thousands of messages especially on the rush one where it was just people saying they'll never come to a rush game again because we did that and it was like you know there is a time where as a as a business you have to be like that's okay like if you we don't we don't we're not going to cater to that kind of hatred like there's just zero place for that for me so you take a stand and you might lose some fans but like i'm we're going to do that every year so that's yeah. that's something Tyler really, really believes in too. And Tyler's like, there was times where the brush thing was happening. I was like, we're getting all these emails. Like, are we going to even have any season ticket? Like, all these people are saying they're canceling their tickets. It's, Tyler was like, they're not going to cancel their tickets. And Tyler would pull up 90% of the names of people who sent the email saying they were coming were never registered in our system in the first place. So it's like, I don't know if they were from Alabama or something. They were sending emails or where were they from? But like, most of the people didn't even have a, most of the people didn't even have their name in our system, so they weren't season ticket holders, but they were posting on Twitter or Facebook that they'll never come to a game and they're canceling their tickets over this jersey. It was like, I, don't know, I, I, I just thought it was really sad. 
Well, and I agree with you. And also, three great examples just in the conversation we've had today about how, you know, sometimes the loudest person isn't the one you need to listen to. It's not necessarily in the best interest of your organization or the people to listen to that person. You know, whether they're saying we want quiet music or they're saying we want to sit in our own row or they're saying we don't want pride jerseys. You know, sometimes you have to make those hard decisions, but in the end, uh, it ends up being the better thing for the health of your organization. And it seems like it's it's had that result for you guys. For sure. I think you got to stand by your beliefs and you stand by your doing the right thing and being inclusive. And, and if we had a player that came up, told us like, Oh, that they were, they were gay. Like I wouldn't, that would be totally great. Like, that's awesome. Like at least they're being themselves and, and they're, they're on a path to being open about it and happy. And I have a ton of respect for Luke Prokop for doing it. It was a very, very, very hard decision. I'm sure for him to make, but um, what a trailblazer and what a fantastic story for our league to have someone uh, of his prominence do that. And, and in our small way, uh, we want to do whatever we can to, to be more inclusive in the sport. So, you know, it's a cool initiative. Well, sure you say you're pumping luke luke prokop's tires right now but there's a coin flips chance that uh that you got to play them here coming up i mean you don't i don't know if you want to do that we've got enough guys in seattle that if we do get there we have we have krinkovic who is there we have lambert that we traded there we have we have roulette they have gustafson we have gustafson uh they have doc uh, there's a whole lot of storylines that I don't know if that one would be even near the top, but I'm nothing but happy for that kid. That's really cool. And, um, I know we have some similar family friends. I don't, I've only met him once, but, um, just a brave, awesome human being to do, to, to be a trailblazer is not easy in this world. So I got nothing but respect for that guy. Well, Colin, we've kept you for quite some time and we we op- we opened the show talking about how you got you know a million things going on um should probably put a bow on this do you have any any closing thoughts about uh you know about life love pursuit of hockey <laughs> no i hope uh we have a great series with winnipeg and it should be there's 40 really good hockey players in those teams and and uh should be a lot of fun and and uh it's really great to be back uh back in the conference final for the first time in a long time and um, continue hitting the road between Edmonton, Saskatoon and scouting and the draft and all that. It'll continue to be busy for me. And, uh, but you know, this will probably be the time of uh, my life when I look back in 20, 30 years at that crazy month of April and May, maybe uh, um, in 2023 where all this kind of crazy stuff happened, but uh, I'm really grateful for the opportunity to chat with you guys and kind of get to talk about some of the, bigger issues in terms of uh bigger stuff than just x's and o's of hockey there's there's more to there's more to the game and there's lots to and and it's it's cool that you guys are interested in stuff like that and talking about different things outside of um outside of the usual so it's been it's been my pleasure and now i'll uh go relieve uh my wife and take care of the baby for a few hours and head to alberta cup well we really appreciate your, your time colin